reading this morning from 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 20 through 23, and 38 and 39, chapter 14, verse 1, and then 23 through 33, chapter 15, verse 13 and 14, chapter 18, verse 4 through 5, 9 through 18, 31 through 33, and 19, chapter 19, 1 through 6. <laughs> and her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because of his violate, he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Verse 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted by Amnon since he was dead. Chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Verse 22, and Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And he cut his hair, cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here, 
that I may send you to the king to ask why I have, have I come from Geshur. It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he su summoned Absalom. And he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Chapter 15. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Chapter 18. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I have had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Abs Ab Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men... Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all 
who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. Chapter 19. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered the with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, we're going to continue um, walking towards the conclusion of this book, Samuel. And then we're going to go into a month of preaching and teaching um, on spiritual rest and renewal as we come up on six months of sabbatical, which is rest and renewal, not only for me and my family, again, for after almost 25 years of straight ministry, but also for this church, um, for God to renew and what I would describe as retail the soil um, and give an opportunity um, and focus for us to seek the Lord spiritually and emotionally in ways we haven't even the last 17 years at Christ Central. You still have an opportunity, let me remind you, um, to give um, to that sabbatical. We are going to have people brought in to lead us um, in the sabbatical as a church. We are going to have guest speakers um, come and talk with us. And again, you can go online and continue giving um, for the sabbatical fund. I must say, I praise God for the generosity that has already been shown in this and um, just the diligence to make sure God gives space and resources for rest. But I was reminded as I was going through this book that the history of what happens in Samuel is told in parallel in the book of Chronicles, 
with one exception. The book of Chronicles details the highlights and historical accomplishments of the kings. While Samuel is the green leaf, right? It's the soap opera. It's the true Hollywood story of the kingship. We see the underbelly. We see the dark side, the empire side of the republic and the home life of King David. And in this continuing biography of the life and rule of King David, no doubt he is chronicled as a great king, international superstar and renowned on the Bible-worthy album, I'm going to call it. Uh, he, his songs, the spiritual songs are recorded forever. But at the same time, it is painfully clear David was a poor husband, poor father, family leader, not, not good there. And what I would describe as a cultural misogynist. And it caused a shakeup and mutiny and insurrection in the kingdom. All because he had daddy issues. In particular, and most directly seen in the broken relationship between him and his son, Absalom. You can just ask any um, leader of, of any organization, even a church institution like our own, what one area of your life will suffer from and at the same time stain your public image and trust. And, and you will get the same answer 95% of the time. Yep, family. Family right? How, how, how are things going at home? And whether it's the mob, gang life, politics, or religion, your family must be in the eyes of most folk managed, right? It must be under control. It must not be a drain or it must not be, it must not weigh or pull you off track emotionally, morally, and spiritually. But as y'all know, it doesn't ever work out like that. And especially for believers, you can't shake or divide the two. How we handle and show up in our earthly relationships reflect the condition of our heavenly relationship. And the condition of our heavenly relationship should and will affect who and how we are in our earthly relationships. So what and where is heaven's fix for our sometimes raggedy relationships. What and where can we find redemption and reconciliation and hope? Well, today I've cherry-picked passages between seven chapters that, that give three musts towards beginning relational healing between us. First, we must recognize and own our sins. Secondly, we must reconcile with those we've hurt. And finally, we must receive God's grace. And the first way to healing our daddy issues, I want to call them, on earth as it is in heaven, is to first recognize and own our sin in our relationships. As you can see and hear for yourselves, uh, the root word in recognizes cognition and cognitive, but, 
recognizing, right? It's taking what we know and then owning it. In, in church world, we say confess it, say it, write it. Don't just know it, re-know it, right? We must recognize and know our sins, which may require us to own up to what may be deeply rooted, ingrained, and sometimes initially unseen or known by us. I was reading um, some Jewish commentary on this. And Absalom's mother, uh, Makkah, uh, uh, was what they call a Ishe Yafat Toar. Okay, can't say that too many times. Which was a non-Jewish woman taken captive during wartime. And who was desired by her Israelite captor who wants to marry her. And it says this, he may do so under the conditions that are specified in scripture in Deuteronomy uh, 21st chapter. And it says this, the woman must shave her head, pare her nails, then wear mourning clothing, mourning as in uh, a, a, a funeral, mourning clothing and lament for her parents' home for a whole month. It says this, only after these steps is her captor permitted to take her as his wife calls her, her husband her captor, right? And it says that rabbis severely criticized David for taking to himself this kind of relationship. In fact, the biblical law in Deuteronomy chapter 21 speaks, hear this now, of three topics in succession. First, it talks about the Eshet Yafat Torah, right? The instance of a man who, then it talks about the instance of a man who has two wives, one he loves and the other he doesn't love. And then the third topic, just to kind of go along with our story today, right after each other, is the topic of the wayward and defiant son. The rabbis derive and believe from this juxtaposition that one transgression, one sin here, leads to the other. If a person brings a woman like this into his home and marries her, he introduces dissension. This complicated family situation with two wives, one oftentimes whom he doesn't love and the other he loves, the Bible is teaching and his rabbis are, are teaching, leads to his child being a wayward and defiant son. And that is between two wives. David had a total of at least seven and maybe eight wives. Wait, wives. Scholars dispute on one of them. So th that even tells you that's confusing and crazy. So you can imagine, right? Based on what I read and talked about what the rabbis are saying, the mess between all of them and their children. And so with more than two wives, there had to be more than one wayward son or more than one or two situations of dissension between everyone. And we see a struggle between two, in particular, Absalom and Amnon. Amnon, crazy enough, in fact, uh, he's called fool, a fool here. Amnon wanted to sleep with his half-sister, Absalom's full sister, Tamar. And that's why Absalom later names his daughter Tamar, right? But, but Absalom has a full sister Tamar and his half-brother Amnon wants to sleep with her. And no two ways about the way the Bible describes it. Amnon straight up physically overpowered her and raped her. And she was forever, the Bible says, emotionally, socially, and mentally broken by it. Never marrying or ever having kids. 
And notice in your reading, the Bible says that this thing in chapter 13 made David angry. And it has a period after it. (laughs) It made him angry. But he took no action. He didn't step in. You know, maybe because he gave the go-ahead without thinking. He was the one who said, hey, um, Tamar, go and help your brother. He's sick, you know. Maybe he, because he gave the go-ahead without thinking or knowing any better to send his daughter to feed food to Amnon, who was faking that he was sick. Or maybe David was guilty for being too busy tending to the kingdom or didn't want to start something between the two wives and have a big uh, mess in there. But bottom line, he... The Bible is teaching refused to deal with it with any justice or personal care or concern. So the story tells us Absalom took matters into his own hands and had Amnon stabbed. How do we get to this point? The answer in large part is in the language used by the writer of Samuel to describe David throughout this story for chapters of this dealing with Absalom. He uses the term the king. Absalom goes to see not his daddy, not his father, not even David. It says the king. That should send up some flags. In the binge-worthy black drama Greenleaf that I mentioned earlier, as you probably can tell, I watched it, comes on Netflix. It's based around a church family, a ministry family. I say based around, it ain't about Jesus, right? It's just a drama around a church family. It is troubling that the pastor of the church, his own kids call him the bishop. And not daddy most of the show. Because they saw him and experienced him and were treated by, by him many times more like the bishop than daddy. David act more, acted more like a king. And was more promising and giving and apparent and present with his family and dealing. And even in his marriages, marriage decisions and how he handled his wives, he acted more like a king. More than he was present as daddy or father or husband or sweetie or baby or honey or papa. And in that he, Bible's teaching, he transgressed. He missed the mark. He failed in his calling. He sinned by abdication and omission. He omitted giving himself to his family. And in his calling, in a way, even as king, he was supposed to give. Since we've been in the house we are currently in, I have seeded my own lawn every year. Right? Took care of it myself. Stuff from Lowe's and Home Depot and other places. And of course, I never get the most expensive stuff. I'm always looking for the deal, right? And thanks to Deacon Terrence Crawford, after an impossible battle with weeds coming up, he convinced me to hire a company called Weed Man. Don't even let your mind go there. I know it did. (laughs) But this past year, Terrence convinced me to take it a step further. Let Weed Man seed your yard for you. And this is what I learned as they were seeding the yard. 
in their bag of seeds, they promise 100% grass seed with no mix. Pure. And then I learned that my regular customer level on sale grass seed might have some impurities in it. And when I was planting good seeds and watering it, guess what? The bad seeds, the weeds were getting planted and sucking all the water and nutrients from the grass seedlings. My relationship with my lawn as its caregiver was not all the way good for it. Here's my point. We have some deeply seeded sin and have sown some conflicting, broken character stuff into the soil of our relationships. Along with all the good things we do. And I know a list is forming in your head right now. I feed them kids. I take care of him. I do this. I do that, right? But, but he, he, here's the deal. We, we all get defensive when talking about how we sin in relationships, though we actually know what it feels like when someone misses or mistreats us in relationship, right? But bottom line, whether on the giving or receiving end, we were not good in all the good we sought or thought we were doing. Let me tell you about everyone, most of you. We are and have been great kings and queens in our relationships, typically. We're great managers in the lives of our children and friendships and dating relationships and marriages and community. We try to just make it work. Some of us, we see how we have fallen short as we do relationship, though. The Bible teaches that we are humans. We as humans are totally depraved, right? But it does not, here's where we get off sometimes. It does not mean that everything we do is evil or most of what we do is evil or reprobate all the time. It just means nothing we do is always or completely pure. This is the the danger of of missing this story here. It's like we were cooking a four-egg omelet, but just one of the eggs is rotten. Or soup with, guess what? There's only three hairs that fell in there out of my jerry curl, right? And, and, and maybe there's just one fly or roach that fell in. A big pot, though. A lifetime of cooking and only one roach in it. How many of y'all went to a restaurant and saw one roach and said, I ain't eating there no more, right? And what if the person said, come on, it's only one little roach. You know what? We have sown a thousand grass seeds with a hundred weed seeds. It has sprouted ruin and spottiness and disconnect. We must recognize that we have sinned in every and all relations and it has caused maybe not as much as others. I agree, we're not all in the same place. Some of our grass look real good. Some of our lawns look real good, right? There's only a couple things. But neglect and insecurity and problems will arise in the lives of our relationships because we are sinners in relationship with each other. I admit, again, some have fared better than others. But now that my boys are 17 and 18, stuff's sprouting up, (laughs) Right? When your kids become adults or closer to adults, things sprout up. When you become an adult and you're with your parents or your friends, guess what? Stuff sprouts up. As a pastor of this church, I know that a lot of times we have marriage problems in our church right around year 10 or 12. 
I call it the adolescent years of marriage. You start to look at each other and wonder whether you love each other. And everything you didn't do right, even on the honeymoon, even at the wedding, the marriage, where y'all live, the job, all the things you thought were great are going great. Guess what? Right in the adolescent years, uh-oh. I see the weeds now. More than ever because my boys are teenagers. I see the missed patches that I've caused because I was the pastor. Or with my time at home, I'm the homeowner fix-it man. Or entertain myself, man, with movie after movie. Or tiring myself out too much for them, them, man. Or ignorant and scared and too self-protective to talk to them. And I don't have time to share how that has happened in my marriage right now. In my extended family and friendships. But for all of us. It happens. And here's the hard part. Like the grass seed, like in David's life, you don't see and know how deep-seated your stuff is until it sprouts high enough or wide enough or out of control enough. It didn't happen in David's life until his kids became grown. (laughs) And so most of us will not see it until it's too late to stop damage and spread from happening. And in those moments, it's easy to give up or give in. But the Lord is calling us and David to say, I played a part, this part in that. And my sin and the world's sin, right? And, and, or, 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 and maybe I played a part in their sin sprouting up. I gave it nourishment and it grew, even if it was fertilizing, contributing to, and encouraging the seed of their own sinful nature to rise up, like David did with Absalom. He didn't come in and confront his son in a way that may have stopped further sin or further issue. His, his neglect, uh, it, it, it provided fertile ground for, for something else to grow up. And out of that, we've seen it, comes addictions and loneliness and self-destruction. Our country, community issues. It's not just the seed, but the watering or, or neglecting to water justice has allowed the sown weeds of injustice to rise up. But we have contributed and must recognize that we are the kings and queens of our relational kingdoms and queendoms, and they are not pure. The Bible tells us, though, that David, in recognizing it, failed to do what we must. He failed to recognize those he had hurt. Look with me at verse, I mean, chapter 13, verse 21 through 23. When King David heard of these things, remember I read this, he was angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Right? So, so this terrible thing happens with Tamar and Amnon. The Bible says David gets angry, but he does nothing. And two years goes by and nobody mentions it. Now, in the meantime, Tamar is living at his, her brother's house, like in the guest room, living in shame, wearing sackcloth, 
right? The Bible says, you know, she had this dress that virgins would wear and it would be long sleeved and flowy. And when you looked at her, you would know that she was a woman who uh, is, is ready to be married and cared for. And the Bible says she tore the sleeves off. She tore the dress apart and wore uh, the dress of someone who had died. Like somebody, like almost like funeral clothes. And, and time by itself, let me explain this, did not and does not heal what was broken. Y'all see that? But instead, like most relational brokenness, it festered in cultured hate and loneliness and division and death, so much so that it led to another heinous occurrence, right? Absalom eventually kills Amnon, seeing that David was just going to ignore things, and Amnon was going to go away, get away with it every day. He had to go home and see his sister cry, and this is focusing on David, right? But Absalom taking matters in his own hands is not confronting the issue either. And then enter Joab. Oh boy, if things couldn't get worse. David's chief of staff in general. In dealing, you know, with um, my, my issues with weeds, I use some weed killers. And sometimes I use the wrong stuff, right? To get that weed out. Even killing some grass and hurting the soil by trying to manage the thing away. Not going soil deep to reconcile things. Job was that weed killer <laughs> that kills the good stuff too. If you read these chapters together, there's all kind of people that show up, y'all. I'm, I'm sorry we couldn't read the whole thing. We would have been here a long time, longer than we already are. Um, but in one, thing, one sitting, you would notice these inciting and ill advisors throughout the story. The weed killers, I call them. The grass killers, right? Jonadab advises Amnon. You don't know him. He comes up a couple times on how to get Tamar into the room with him alone. And then that same Jonadab doesn't ever get found out as the one who, who thought up this plot to help Amnon rape his sister. And then he comes later and gives David some other raggedy advice. Right? We, we don't see him. But we got Joab. And he advises David in how not to reconcile with Absalom, but in how rather to manage the broken relationship. Look at verse 37 and 13, 30, uh, verse, uh, look in chapter 13, sorry I got a lot of chapters, verses 37 through 39, after Absalom flees after killing his brother Amnon, um, and, and look, what he, look what it says here in verse 37, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of, all oh, these names y'all, Amahud, king of Geshur, and David uh, mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there Three years. And the spirit of the king, again, not his daddy, longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And then look at verse 1 in chapter 14, what it says, continuing on. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Okay, so this is Joab. This is, this is David's right-hand man, right? This is his friend, if you will, in some ways, not just the person who works for him. Let me shorthand Joab for you because we don't have time to, look, to pull him out of the text. Joab does not care or know about rooted reconciliation, repentance, and justice. 
He doesn't know. He's not truly dealing with and healing David's heart that we see. He's going after his son in the relationship with Absalom. He doesn't know to say, hey, quit acting like a king and act like a daddy. Let me tell you, it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. He was concerned. That, let me tell you, when you look at the story, he was more concerned that David's emotions would destabilize the kingdom. So Joab works and encourages things so that David can manage and move on and do good at his job and expand the kingdom and live with this break in his relationship. So instead of getting David to face his sin and then turn to his son and get justice for his daughter and murdered son Amnon, he simply brings Absalom, eventually, excuse me, brings Absalom back to Jerusalem where David is living to stop him, hear me, from being unmanageable and worrisome to David and get this dangerous to the kingdom. So Joab and David wanted him near them sequestered, locked in. Man, sometimes you just, you don't really talk to your kids. Sometimes you don't really talk to people very close to you. You have broken relationships. You just lock in. You just live in it. They just wanted to live in it. But Joab and David knew something else, right? They had to keep him at arm's length because Absalom was magnetic in his looks and personality. And he could build an army of vengeance and start an insurrection as he sought to drain the swamp in Jerusalem, a poor justice led by his father. And like the weeds, it happens again, though. Look at verse 28 with me in chapter 14. It says here, I can find. So Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Another two years goes by. So Joab runs after killing his brother, right? Uh, three years happens and then he goes and gets him and he says, all right, you're back in Jerusalem. What is, what is Absalom thinking? Finally, he even says, can I come before my daddy and if I'm guilty, will he, can I just die for it? In other words, I want to see him so bad. I want justice so bad. I want this thing that happened to my sister and me and even me killing my brother to be brought up. I want my dad to own it. I want him to see me. I want him to see me face to face and when he comes once again two years and David even says I don't want to see him let him live over here let me live over there and eventually Joab breaks down and says hey you need to see him this dude is getting kind of rambunctious you need to see him and the Bible tells us he does go see him and Absalom falls down on his face and David what not David the king kisses him and that's it No justice, no repentance, managed with a kiss. <sighs> Hear me, the best human management and best time will heal strategies, will now fix this brokenness sin brings. It will not fix on his own relational brokenness. And if the best advisors in the world didn't work for David and Absalom and Tamar and Amnon, it will not. And God does not expect those of us suffering from our guilty and desperate for connecting hearts and emotions to just self-manage it or just wait it out. Let me tell you what happens. It scabs. 
It scars and it festers. And yes, you stop feeling it for a while. But all it takes is one or two things to pull the scab off. All it takes is to look in the mirror long enough and realize you got some scars. Sometimes that happens in therapy and counseling. You don't go to therapy or counseling and someone says, hey, focus on this. And you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I was that scarred. I just managed it. I just outworked it. I just outran it. I just let them live with it. I just let them kiss me, if you will. Mama kissing it to make it better? Not all the time. And that's exactly what happens when they realize they can't manage sin and sin brokenness. Absalom sinfully seeks justice and freedom on his own and not just runs away again. He gets an army to dethrone his unjust and heart-hurting father. And what does King David do? He still, listen to this. So Absalom goes and gets an army. Maybe his dad will understand war, right? His dad is this great war general. Let me go get an army now. And the Bible says David still does not confront even on the battlefield, he refuses to even fight for his son, much less against his son. He instead, the Bible tells us, in fear that he runs. Now, he might have been afraid of going to war with his kid and losing him forever, afraid of losing his kingdom or not being able to handle what a civil war might do to him and the kingdom emotionally and vocationally. But the Bible says he flees into the wilderness. You know what that means? He abdicates, right? He just leaves the throne in the middle of a family kingdomic of Absalom. And again, it doesn't work. Absalom ends up dead and David ends up heartbroken. You know what we do? A lot of time, especially us men, (laughs) instead of facing the mistakes and our issues and putting our fragility or careers or pride or shortcomings on the line or facing hard conversations or deeply emotional conversations and difficult and unknown spaces emotionally, we get so afraid and lack so much faith, we run. The strongest of us. The people who go in war every day at work, right? The killers, right? The hungry ones, the the ones who be eaten, as they say, are the ones who are running and hiding and ducking out in relationship. Scared, man-caving. You know, man-caves are good. But sometimes some of us are man-caving with too much substances. Strong drink, ESPN, CNN, Netflix, PS4, PS5, Xbox. Sometimes it's a, a bunker for broken relationships. You know, somebody asked me a good question. Let me tell you two things that are hard for a family man. I'm just talking because I'm a family man. I know there's so many ways to supply. So please excuse me if you're not married or have kids. I'm not trying to leave you out. I'm just talking from testimony's sake. I want you to try to apply it in your own relationships, whether friendships or community or parents or whatever relationships you may have, neighborhood, you can apply it. But, but here are two things that I know I struggle with. Go in that room with them boys, sit down and have a conversation with them. Oh, no. No. I'll never win in there. I'll never win in there. Right? Don't go in that room. That thing hard. Right? How you doing? What's going on? Let's talk. You know it's going to be bumpy. 
You know it's going to be hard up in there. Right? They're going to be quiet. They're not going to talk. They might stonewall. Oh, it's going to make me feel bad. It's going to remind me how many opportunities I miss. It'll remind me that maybe in 17, 18 years, I haven't set up a conversation track well enough to actually get there. I don't want to deal with all that. So it's just best to wait for them to come in the room and me to pray for them. And that's it. I've done my part, God. The other thing, scary, and I don't recommend y'all doing this necessarily. It would be good, but it's going to be difficult. Go to your wife and ask this question. How's it going between us? How are we doing? You know what the dude says? Nine times out of ten, we all right. Right? Sometimes, oh man, you ask that question, you know you're in trouble when the tears come. There is no answer, right? You know what we do? We run. We duck. We hide. We all run. From being a mother or father or friend or sister or brother or neighbor or fellow citizen or even fellow human being, we will run because we don't believe we have what it takes to not be crushed or destroyed or abused by the confrontation. But the alternative is devastating, don't you know? That leaving your position, not stepping into position in a relationship that is headed to a face-to-face is devastating to the path and means of God blessing and grace coming down, albeit it's going to be bumpy. The road is going to be treacherous for you and them headed toward reconciliation. And it may mean standing in place to hear a painful truth. I don't often stand in that place. (laughs) I don't want to. I don't want to go out to war for somebody. In our passage, managing things with human means and limitations and running away or running off people killed them in the story. Don't you see that? Joab, representing David's management branch of his life and emotions, stabs Absalom without any hearing, even though David says, don't kill him. He does it. He can't help it. He stabs Absalom without any hearing or facing and shows his true intentions. He didn't care about David and Absalom's soul and heart and healing. He just didn't want the relationship to get in the way anymore. So instead of bringing him back in or going to him, risking a breakdown or this thing consuming David's attention away from his career and driving success and the image of perfection for friends and world, he stabs him. And when he kills Absalom, he just puts another stake through David's heart. Look at verse 1 in chapter 19. Boy, we're jumping all the way at the end here, right? Go go back. Look at chapter 1. I mean, verse 1 in chapter 19. After Joab kills Absalom, it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. There is a Joab and David, um, the kissing king, inside each one of us and maybe outside of us advising us to suck it up and this is the unhealthy suck it up because it is saying don't repent it'll cost you too much don't reconcile it'll take too long it's too difficult it's too hard just put it away and move on and move on it but it leaves a broken David do you see that And an Absalom who was buried in worse than an unmarked grave, the Bible tells us, but a grave that was marked with judgment and condemnation and not justice and freedom. We've all been here. We've all done it. 
We have in our all experience saying, hear me, the death and condemnation of relationships that we fail to be able or willing to confess, confront, and reconcile with justice and mercy. You know why? We're afraid that we will not be able to handle the sorrow and guilt of what we have done. It's too much condemnation. We will be crushed to face someone we have crushed. Just too hard or we have never been this wrong in our lives. Some of y'all thought you were great parents and great kids and and great neighbors and, and great whatever. And then all of a sudden you hear this and you, I've never been this wrong. And it's scary that someone else sees and shows what we fail to. Or we're so guilty of feeling a certain way. Or we don't want the other person to know how much we long for their friendship. Well, you know, you really hurt me. Oh, baby. Right? We don't want that shame. Or or how desperate and weepy we were that we couldn't be good with them or in with them. And we hide behind in our pride, Joab-like hardness and war strength. And go to war within ourselves and others, putting up a strong defense to cover that David part of us that is sad and crying and longs for righteousness. But now most of us have put it in the grave. Most of us are on the run. Or in tears. Or in silence. Or just waiting time in our marriages. In our romantic relationships. In our friendships. With our parents. Children. Brother and sisters. Who are ideologically and politically potentially at odds with you. God calls and offers more y'all. He offers grace. You know what would have turned the tide in this story? It sounds pretty simple. If the king would have become a daddy. You see, the pain and sorrow David has was that he failed to be a daddy. The daddy he should have been was trapped in condemnation and fear and failure. That is where most of us are on the Absalom or David side. Don't know which one. The tears that come throughout the story were the father seeking to break through. And if the daddy, daddy David had emerged, Tamar and Amnon, Absalom would have not just known justice, but love and mercy and grace. David was not free. He was caught in his own, too caught in his own sins to do that. Now let's pull back. 30,000 divine feet for a minute. Pull back. We are all God's children. We have come in with historical and emotional conflict like Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom hurting each other in different ways and have done all sorts of things to each other in our relationship. As the king of heaven and earth, the Lord did not run, hide, or try to manage us. The eternal divine king of kings allowed himself to become more than just our God. But our daddy. So that we can be treated like sons and daughters struggling between each other. In situations sometimes too hard emotionally and spiritually to free ourselves from. 
Look again at verse 33 in chapter 18 with me. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber. This is after Absalom was die, died uh, over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then look at Joab's words here. So the king is crying. And the Bible says in verse 4, the king covered his face, the face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Why? Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that, that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For, day, for today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Ah, there's a cryptic gospel message in here. Do y'all see it? Back to the beginning of our sermon. The topic of the Ishe Yafat Toar. Do you know what Deuteronomy, the law of God, says about a son who is rebellious like Absalom and for parents of that child? This is what Deuteronomy 21 says. It says the mother and father should take a hold of their son and bring their son before the elders, and the son will be stoned to death. It was the law. Bad relationships, broken relationships should die and be cut off so that the kingdom, the good relationship can continue. You know what? Joab was partly right. Halfway legally speaking in, 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 in killing Absalom, I say halfway because he was supposed to come before the elders. He was supposed to just kill him out in the street, Right? He didn't have his chance. He refused that chance for David to even own up for what he did. And he was refused that chance even before David for justice. And the Bible talks about we, we, we you know, let me tell you what, let me just throw this in here. We need a community and need advising from the Bible and how to handle. And we need people who reveal the true person and character of God and not a bunch of Joabs. Right? Not just taking justice and understanding justice in our own minds. Right? Oh, we see injustice in the world. Let me just jump in. Who told you? Right? So, so let's keep that in mind. Who's telling you how to do it? Right? But anyway, because Joab and David were unaware. That's why they did this wrong. That's why they didn't even bring Absalom to, to, to justice, even to be stoned. Right? Let me tell you why. They were unaware and not in tune. They were ignorant about a God being the Father God. They forgot about the Father God's heavenly grace and mercy and comfort for broken relationship. What Joab accused David of, do you know the gospel tells us God did exactly that? What Joab said David was doing wrong, God did and kept the law. You know how God did die for those who were alienated from each other and from him. Like David said, I wish I could die, right? And, and he did love those who hate him, like Joab says, and being sinners and spiritual rebels and runaways and slaves, but not to cover them with shame or cover up the mess, but to engage them with grace, glory, 
and power. You see, the gospel teaches God treated and let Jesus be treated like Tamar and Amnon and Absalom. Violated, ignored, legally managed, stoned, right? Face turned away, irreconciled with his father God. He was sentenced to death in hell by his own elders. And the Bible tells us he was buried in a shameful grave so that you and I could see, so you and I, right, could see the face of God, the King, and God, our Father. So we could see God like a daddy. That God would face us like, and we would know what it was like to be a brother and a sister and a friend and a neighbor and a community so that we could be free to recognize and own our sin, be reconciled with God and be free then to live in relationship with each other with the grace and comfort and gentleness and dignity of those who were and are received and treated like sons. I'm not talking about relationships being reconstituted. That's not what it's being here. I'm talking about reconciled. That means owning and repenting and and laying before us the road to justice and peace between us. No, it may not ever be perfect. No, we may not be able to live in the same house. Yes, one of us might be disciplined or, or whatever, but we will have the justice and be the experience, the grace of God, and you can't offer that and you can't receive that until you've been offered and received what it's like to be treated like a son who deserved to die. God did not and does not manage you or your broken relations. God did not and does not run away from you relationship runaways. God does not and did not condemn you who are his, condemned by how you treat and were treated by others. You are free today. In that, right, to be reminded in that, to be bathed anew in that. By doing what Absalom and David were paralyzed to do. You're free to go to your daddy. You're free to hear his word over you. You're free to go in his presence. In fact, he welcomes you. To see his face. To face and dig into your issues together. But go to your daddy who does not have issues with you because you're in Christ. But wants to issue you grace and love and embrace. Again, so you can recognize and own your sin. And you can find reconciliation in your relationships. And receive more grace of his as you do. You know, it's interesting. In Christ... You have glorious daddy issues. Because your daddy issues love, grace, engagement, his spirit's presence, community, his word. Man, there's a lot going on in our relationships. If you're not a believer today, I promise you, you're either managing or killing your relationships.
and it's eating you alive. It's festering. And, and I, don't, I don't want to scare you. I just want to inform you that those seeds of unmet relationships or irreconciled, un, unjust and abusive relationships, the problem is it doesn't just sprout in your generation. There was a reason Absalom named his daughter Tamar. And the Bible says she was beautiful. It continues to sprout into the next. And it shapes our world. I'm not even asking you to be strong enough. I'm asking you to collapse before the king who is a father. Who's welcoming you in to finally begin the work of knowing what it's like to be reconciled so you can do the same in your relationships around you. And it works the opposite, right? The seeds of hope planted in you. Oh, I look at my kids. I look at my wife. And I think about God's grace overcoming the many weeds I planted with the seeds of his glory and grace. Only having a relationship with a daddy who is God like that can change things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust you in ways we can't trust ourselves. We can't face condemnation. We can't face shame. We can't face being wrong. So you did for us so that we can face our shame and reconcile and repent of our wrong. I pray for those who have forgotten or not known what it's like to be a son whose father welcomes them in. Most of us, Lord, have failed to experience what it's like to have someone love us who should be disappointed in us. I pray that that love would come through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would go right now. Those who are listening, those who will listen. As we, right now, Lord, I pray, and for those who are believers, I, I just want us to take time to think about relationships and think about people. And as we think of those people, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would go. That you would intercede. That you would till good soil. That you would even plant good seeds that will choke out the bad seeds. Oh, Lord, work miracles right now in Jesus' name. Oh, Father, there are dead relationships in unmarked graves or graves like Absalom marked with shame and promise of nothing but, but pain. Oh, God, Holy Spirit, raise those from the dead. Breathe new life in them. 
in a way only you can, God. Oh, God, our children. Oh, they suffering. We, we, we didn't all do right. Oh, Lord, those of us who are now grown children. Lord, we, we, things ain't right. Holy Spirit, minister to us right now. Lord, not when we get our theology right. Not when we've gone to enough Bible studies. But Lord, right now, let us come into your presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us feel and know your love. Let us experience it right now, Jesus. Thank you, God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.